That person has some. That person over there has a full cup. Wait, I think they went back for fourths. Mmm, you know? And this may have been what was happening at this event. The church, people in the church, are disgruntled. They're pointing fingers. Something is wrong. This is not what God has meant for the church. So what is going to happen? You see, the symbols at that time had completely lost their meaning. There are many ways that can happen. Um, For example, the Sabbath. You couldn't walk more than a Sabbath day's journey. What does that mean? Well, they decided that was 2,000 cubits. Okay. Well, 2,000 cubits away from your home. But if you went out the day before, 2,000 cubits, and you placed a lunch there or a meal, then you could walk to that spot, sit down, eat that meal, and consider that your temporary home or abode. Then you could go another 2,000 cubits from there. All right. Wait, now there's another problem. I'm now 4,000 cubits away from home, and i got to get back, or do I just sit here the rest of the day? So the people went and argued. The, the priest finally, okay, fine, we'll just we'll take it to 8,000 cubits, whatever. And they begin all of this arguing about this. Symbols can become also extremely overwhelming, perhaps even taking the place of what they're supposed to represent. Um, Bread and wine becoming the actual um, blood and body of Jesus. How about shrines, icons, saints that you must pray to in order to get something from, that you must worship. These are symbols, and they can so easily take over what they're supposed to represent. Phylacteries. You have to have the right kind. You have to wrap it around your arm a certain number of times and have the, you know, the scriptures in there. Um, and if you don't do that, you're, you know, you're not doing it right. It's a symbol. It can lose its meaning. The early church, of course, struggled with some of these symbols as well. And... Um, realized that things like circumcision. Romans 2.29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not the letter. How about baptism? Early church argued who you got baptized under. That mattered to them, right? Who, who, who did it? Uh, what about how you did it? Was it just enough? Is it... The immersion, that's what counts, or is it what it represents? It's a symbol of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be careful how we judge people sometimes. What about the Sabbath? Thank you for sharing thoughts earlier about the Sabbath, uh, Sister Fluence. It, it is a symbol. It, okay, let me contrast this. Is it about what you do and don't do? No, it's not. It's so much more than that. Uh, It is a relationship with the Creator, the one who made the Sabbath holy. 
Remember the Jews? They wanted him down off the cross so they could keep the Sabbath. They don't want to break the law, and they're breaking the creator of the Sabbath's heart. See, after six days of demonstrating might and power by creating things on this earth, God created mankind and said, I rest my case. Take 24 hours and think about what has transpired. You see, that incredible display of, of might and power was not what he wanted to leave the universe with. It was not meant for shock and awe. Please, take the time to reflect. Look, universe, this is how I operate. Now, you may live this special time, um, this precious time, set apart and blessed, to reflect and choose a creator that values your freedom. So the wedding party had undoubtedly at this point participated in all the civil and ceremonial uh, portions, but the enjoyment, the love was missing. The law was alive and choking people with laws on top of laws to keep people from breaking the letter of the law, but the spirit is missing. You see what's about to happen in this story? Jesus is about to bring some life back to the party we call the church. This is the Old Covenant versus New Covenant. This moment is pivotal, crucial. This, this is a universal moment. This is the start of the climax chapter of the great controversy. So, what happens? Jesus' mom says something to him. They have no wine. Why is she concerned? Well, the family was invited. This was probably a uh, family member. And perhaps she was there helping. But the fact that she talked to Jesus shows something. She knew who he was, right? She believed in him and his mission on the earth. She knew he was not just a teacher, but so much more. And she looks at him with those, those mother eyes. You know that look. At that moment, I love you so much. And right now I'm in need. You have the power by your choice, your actions, to make me the happiest mother in the whole world. Who can resist those eyes? Nobody could. A mother's eyes can convey a lot of other things as well. You know, come here, you little brat. You're going to get what's coming to you, all right? I think I saw those a few times when I was a kid, too. Um, what is Jesus' response? In verse 4, Jesus says, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. That seems like a strange statement to make and then turn around and do something. You see, there are very often things in living parables that don't seem to make sense, and you must dig deeper. This statement is a reference. It is put there for us. So, what is this a reference to? Uh, please go with me to John 7. John 7. 
another time that Jesus says something very, very similar. Starting with verse 2. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe him. Then Jesus says to them, My time has not yet come. There's a reference. But your time is always ready. The, word cannot, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast. My time has not yet fully come. And verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Huh. Again, something kind of mysterious. My time has not yet come. I'm not going to go. They leave, and he goes. What is happening? There is something that's going to happen at this feast that's going to help us understand the other story. So um, let's understand some background for uh, this feast. The Gihon Spring uh, flows year-round. It uh, slows down a little bit um, in the drier season. But, um, of course, Hezekiah built this amazing tunnel, flows through the tunnel, fills the Pool of Siloam. And the Pool of Siloam in the city would have been used for ceremonial cleansing. Okay. And uh, here we go. There's the Pool of Siloam. Um, during the Feast of Tabernacles, what happened is the high priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam and fill a, picture, a pitcher of water. There's a lot of symbolism built into uh, this feast and what they did. Um, this feast was filled with uh, a lot of joy. They say it's the only feast that, that God commanded the Jews to observe with uh, joy. So they would take this water in a great procession up uh, towards the altar. And interestingly enough, it would be led by a flute player. And the flute player was called, known as... The pierced one. Okay? Why would the flute player be known as the pierced one? Think of the flute and how it's made. It has holes in the side. Okay? This was a type of Christ. Right there. Okay? Easy to look back and say, wow, how could they not get it? <laughs> so in this great procession, being led by the flute player, uh, they'd be lined with people going up towards the altar. Uh, people would uh, break off willow branches, be waving them up to 20 feet long. These would make great whooshing sounds in the air. Uh, we say, they say now that symbolizes the Holy Spirit, the wind. So we have Christ, we have the Holy Spirit going up to the altar. Um, at the um, altar, it's part of the procession, at the altar, they would pour <coughs> the water mixed with wine at the base of the altar. Um, 
there was a lot of celebration here, and then they would take the branches uh, during, at this time, and they would place them over uh, the top of the altar and create a, a chupa, a, a dwelling place um, over the altar. So right at this moment, at the, when this procession is going up there and this is taking place, water and wine are being mixed and poured on the altar. Jesus stands up, Go down to verse uh, 37. Jesus stands up and says this. <clears throat> On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John adds this, but, he spoke, but this he spoke uh, concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, but Jesus was not yet glorified. So, Jesus interrupts this at this moment and adds this extra meaning. He stands up and says, Believe in me, I am everlasting water. There is something special at this moment about water, and wine being mixed together that symbolizes Jesus and the everlasting water he gives us. So let's look at that just a little bit more. You see, there's some more symbolism. Uh, the, the Gihon Spring continuously provides water. It never runs out. Everlasting water comes from Jesus. Uh, in the Old Testament, the water that came out of the rock when the Israelites needed it two times, that, again, is symbolic. And Paul got that in 1 Corinthians 10.4. He says that that rock was Christ. Jesus was providing a solution for thirst as well as ceremonial cleansing. You see, normal water, that cleansing ceremonial water, becomes living water when mixed with wine or blood. Let's think about that for just a little bit. On the Mount of Olives in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, what does Geth Gethsemane mean? What does it mean? Oil press. Okay, Ol they have the olive trees there. This is an oil press. Now, to get oil out of uh, olives is a lot of work. And there were different kinds of presses. Um, there's some here with the, with the torsion, with heavy uh, wheels that would roll and press. They had uh, various types with long arms, very heavy weights to get a lot of torque. Some good physics there. All right. And they'd really have to put a tremendous amount of pressure to get that oil out. So back to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a reason he's there. What is happening? All right, Luke 22, 43. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And when, uh, then, his sweat became like great drops of 
blood falling to the ground. Sweat is water. It ends up turning into blood, and that water and blood drip and fall into the ground. The ground, the earth representing humanity. Jesus is providing that picture for us right there at that moment. It's a, it's a tremendous, powerful moment. Um, in John 19, um, 34, um, <clears throat> what happens? One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately, what came out? Water and blood, both. Tremendous um, symbol here. First John uh, 5, 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. He repeats it twice. There's something incredibly important that we're supposed to learn here. This is powerful. The water and the blood and what it represents. If you have time uh, later, it's kind of interesting to look up in Leviticus 14. There's a ceremony that you would do with a bird. Running water and, and uh, blood, dripping into the water, and dipping a live bird and letting it go, and what that represented. It's... Old Testament and New Testament. The symbols are all there. Well, with this in mind, let's return to the wedding party. Um, <clears throat> okay, where are we at? His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. How many pots? Six. What does six represent? In Scripture, six is the number of man. These six pots represent us. What are they made out of? They're stone. There's, now, if they're going to hold anything, this big chunk of stone, what has to happen to it? It must have been worked. It must have been chipped at slowly. And over time, hollowed out, that stony center taken out of these jars. Does that remind you of anything? How about Ezekiel 36, 25? Um, I can't read my notes. Okay. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that what we need? God, take out our stony hearts. So these six jars representing man that had the center, the stony center removed, what happened to them? They were... Um, Filled, right? Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. If you ask God to come and fill you, does he do it halfway? No. That's never the case. Now, I don't know. Sometimes we have some junk in there. Might be taking up some room. We need to get rid of that. But whenever we ask, God will come in and fill us up to the brim. The Spirit will not leave you wanting. <clears throat> These jars 
what were they used for? They were used at that point. They would have had water in them, and people perhaps would have dipped their hands in there for ceremonially, ceremonially cleansing their hands. Uh, the, the, the utensils they would have used would have been dipped in, uh, not necessarily to wash and scrub. It was ceremonial. They had to do it. Remember the time where the, the Pharisees got mad at Jesus because the disciples didn't wash their hands correctly? So they were unclean. This was a big deal to them. So, these represent the ceremonies of the Old Testament. Um, the old washings are not enough. What is needed? What needs to be added to that? What's the fulfillment? It is the wine, the blood of Jesus that is needed through the Holy Spirit. So, the amazing part. He said to them, draw some out now. Take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the feast represents who? God the Father. And this event happens, and God the Father says, there it is. You have saved the best for last. Yeah, there was a bunch of other stuff, but this right here is it. This is the best. You see, this is not some cheap trick that, that you know, was forced out of Jesus. This is one of the greatest moments in the whole Bible. That line right there, you have saved the best for last, is universal, is amazing. It's kind of like, I know this looks bad. The, the party's not going as planned, <clears throat> uh, but when it's all done, you're going to see, because of a pivotal moment at Calvary, that I, Jesus, chose to participate in. No one forced me. Not my mother, not my brothers. I took my own life. I laid it down. It was not to satisfy or appease some angry God um, or some unbending rule. I, I'm redeeming mankind because of my love for you. And there is going to be a new healing, truly everlasting, overflowing plan. And God says, that's it. This is the best. It was what the Trinity had decided all along. This is the pivotal moment in the fulfillment of the great controversy. You see, let's go back and look just for a moment at some of the things that have happened in the past. So Satan claims God is arbitrary, deceitful, selfish. He convinces a third of the angels to doubt God. So God creates Adam and Eve to demonstrate his unconditional love, and true freedom. Adam and Eve failed, though, to grow to full spiritual maturity. They believed Satan's lies about God. So he had a plan to redeem humans, and he made a promise to them. Adam and Eve's children failed. The world got pretty bad. Uh, in fact, at one point, almost all knowledge of the true God was about to disappear. How could the Redeemer come if no one left on earth could raise the Son of God. 
If no one knew the true God, that wouldn't work. He had to protect his name. There was a flood. After that, a covenant with Noah. God made a promise. Noah just had to believe. Then the world got pretty bad again. There was a Tower of Babel. Now you notice why. People, why did people build the Tower of Babel? Because they didn't believe in God? No. They didn't believe in his promises. Okay. He said, I'm not going to do that again. And they didn't believe it. They went from trusting God and what he said to doubting God. I wonder at this time if their sacrifices changed from building an altar to praise God and, and worship him as, as a creator, as a loving being, to altars to appease an angry God and stop him from bringing calamity. They had the wrong picture of God. There was a covenant with Abraham to be the father of many nations. Um, bless, uh, oh yeah, here we go. There we go. Uh, uh, bless the earth. Um, it was interesting, when that covenant was made, there was a wave offering, and uh, God passed through the middle of the offering. Both parties were supposed to do that, but God put Abraham to sleep. You see, his promises don't depend on our actions. He will always follow through. There was a covenant with Moses and the Israelites, giving them the promised land. God did it, didn't he? His original idea to uh, displace a few people while he put this special group there so that he could bless them, teach them who he was, and then they could share that with the world and convert the world, failed. They didn't get it. They wanted to take over. They wanted the king. They wanted the wars. They wanted this. It turned into this exclusive club. We have God and you don't. Ha, ha, ha. That was not what God intended. There were the um, Ten Commandments. <clears throat> um, how many tablets? Stone? Two. There are many scholars that would suggest um, that that is because there were two copies. Each tablet contained an entire set of the Ten Commandments. Every time, um, if you're going to buy a car, take out a loan, do some, some um, special thing with someone and make a covenant or an agreement, isn't there more than one copy? Who gets a copy? You do, and the other party does. You both get a copy. Okay? So is it possible that there were two copies? The interesting thing is, where were they kept? In the Ark of the Covenant. And where was that? The tabernacle in the midst of their presence. So, meaning that Israel had one copy in their camp, because that's where they lived, and God's copy was also in the midst of their tent camp, because that's where he lived and dwelt. They dwelt together. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> there was a priestly covenant uh, where um, some, some 
priests are chosen uh, to be something special uh, to that uh, nation. Uh, Davidic covenant uh, in which uh, David's name would be great and Messiah and peace would come uh, through David. And then the new covenant is mentioned. Jerus uh, Jerusalem. Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Do I have that? Yeah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There it is. My heart and mind are changed. I enter a relationship with God. See, it's not about bruising the serpent's head. It's been done. It's not about the flood or no flood. We believe that promise. It's not about having many children. We are all children of God. It's not about a hill in Israel. We have a new Jerusalem that Jesus has built. We will all live and reign there soon. It's not about an exclusive group of priests based on inheritance that administer ceremonies. Um, as uh, Paul says in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. They had to change that thinking at that time. Everyone can be a priest. It's not about the lineage of a king. It already happened. What is it about? Let's look a little more closely at this new covenant. Matthew 26, 27, and 28. We're familiar with this. And might be talking more about it soon. Uh, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You know, every reference to the Last Supper toast says new covenant. Every reference. The blood is the symbol of what? The new covenant. That is what it is about. You see, there's many texts that go along this line. A man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? That is the new covenant. It is alive. It's that living water. Um, from Desire of Ages, all true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. Wow. 
Christ's Object Lessons, 3.11. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Psalms um, 51. David got it right. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. <clears throat> Jesus tried so much to change it. Uh, he, he, so many times, you have heard it said, but I say. I mean, right after Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, he talks about murder. You've heard it say, don't murder, but I say, don't be angry. Where does anger take place? In the heart. He talks about adultery, and he says, no, it's, don't just do that for any reason you want. It's really about what? Lust. Where does that take place? In the heart. <clears throat> um, he goes on and on. Eye for an eye. No, don't resist, but give. Hate your enemy. No, no, no. Love your enemy. There's a problem here. See, you've gone over to behavior-based living. What you need is principle-based living. The Samaritan woman at the well, it's an amazing encounter there that uh, Jesus has with her. And after this experience, which he tells her that if you had known you would ask me for a drink, and I would have given you what? Living water. So after she gets it, she goes back, testifies to the city. And what happens? There's a revival there. There's a bunch of believers because of that. Now, was she a great witness because she was following the rules? That wasn't the reason. Was she a great witness because she was ceremonially cleansed? No. Was she a great witness because her life was transformed? And people could see it in her eyes. They could hear it in her voice. She had a new reason for living. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is what we need. When the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. We are those earthen vessels. We have stony hearts. We can try to wash with all the splashing and cleansing ceremonies we want, but it is never going to work. We are going to remain dull and lifeless only when we allow God to remove that stony heart, to make room for the water and the blood, the wine that Jesus freely gave for us at the cross and gives us today through the Holy Spirit. Only when we accept that internal cleansing, when we drink that living water, 
only when we fully give our lives to him will we understand that the law transforms our lives. It is no longer an external requirement. It is a heart change, a transformation from the inside out. Suddenly, the dull and lifeless event, the going through the motions changes. It changes from rules to relationship, from works of righteousness to regeneration and renewal. It changes from struggle to Holy Spirit power. And that is when the party comes to life. And it's his life, the blood plus water, making living water in us that is that life. Let's pray. God, I thank you once again for this blessed day, this day that you have set aside for us. May we go out from here not just having dipped our hands in the water, not just having, you know, scrubbed the dishes, but Lord, that we have plunged, that we have, we've taken that living water and we drink it. It goes into us, Lord. It, it fills us completely to the brim. It transforms us when we realize what you've done and what you've given to us. And let us, having obtained that blessing, go out and share that with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.